Okay. Well, you know, if you if any of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, uh, you know, you see these signs that tell you these rocks are millions of years old. Uh, is that true? And if they are, is the Bible wrong about Earth history? Well, as you can uh, tell from this conference, uh, we are um, firmly persuaded that the Bible is telling the truth about Earth history. But people have questions about, you know, where are they getting these millions of years? And one of the main arguments for millions of years comes from what they call radioisotope or radiometric or radioactive dating methods. Uh, and this is how they assign age estimates to rocks. But this process is not as straightforward as you may have been led to believe. Um, but I want to I want to ask you a question. Uh, how do secular scientists know if a radioisotope date for a rock is correct? Well, there's one simple rule that enables them to tell whether it's a good date or not. And basically, good dates agree with evolution. Okay, and bad dates don't. Okay, that's basically the bottom line. Okay, if a date agrees with the evolutionary story, it's good. If it doesn't, it, it's not. It's not a good date. And so it's kind of a game almost. Um, and, and let me just kind of give you a sort of an overview of radioisotope dating. These radioactive dating methods are used on rocks that used to be in a molten state. And of course, those rocks cool and harden. And then you can make chemical measurements on that, and then you can turn the crank and get an age estimate. Now, there are many uh, rocks out there that are not volcanic. You know, you have water-deposited rocks like these in the Grand Canyon. And, of course, we're arguing that these, nearly all of these are from the Genesis flood. But during the flood, you're going to have a lot of uh, volcanic activity, especially toward the end. So you're going to have within, mixed in with those sedimentary rocks you're also going to have a lot of volcanic rocks. And so you may wonder, well, if you can only use these radioisotope dating methods on volcanic rocks, well, how do they know that, or how do they claim to know that the sedimentary rocks are millions of years old? How do they know that the fossils are millions of years old? Or how do they think they know that? Well, basically, the reasoning is pretty simple, right? Let's say you've those gray horizontal line bars there uh, represent volcanic rocks and let's say you use a radioisotope dating method and you get ages of millions of years for those volcanic rocks well sandwiched between those volcanic rocks you may have sedimentary rocks and so it stands to reason if the volcanic rocks are millions of years old so are the sedimentary rocks and so are the fossils within them so that's how they basically Client, you know, they, they assign these ages of millions of years to the fossils, even though you don't really normally use uh, these radioisotope dating methods on the fossils. And so this is where they're, we're getting this idea of deep time or this idea that radioisotope dating confirms deep time. Now, it's important to realize that these rocks don't have labels attached to them uh, saying, you know, hey, I'm 30, 320 million years old or whatever. Uh, these are all calculated ages they're not measured remember there's no device out there uh, that can measure the age of an object okay there, there's you can only calculate it based on assumptions about the past and those age estimates will be only as good as the assumptions behind them uh, but this morning I want to give you five reasons uh, to be skeptical of these vast ages that are coming from radioisotope dating and the first reason 
is that these radioisotope dates routinely disagree with common sense. Uh, many of you are familiar with the uh, Mount St. Helen eruption in 1980, uh, but there was some subsequent volcanic activity after that, and a lava dome actually started forming at the summit. And at the time, it was about 10 years old, uh, a creation scientist went up there, got some samples from that lava dome, sent them off to a lab and had them dated and got ages of between 340,000 and 2.8 million years. And yet these rocks are just, you know, around 10 years old or so. Okay, the, obviously that doesn't make sense. Uh, there's a uh, volcanic uh, summit in New Zealand called Mount Ngerahu. And there were a whole bunch of eruptions in the mid uh, 20th century. And yet you got potassium argon ages for these rocks that could be as high as 3.7 million years, even though the rocks are somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years old. And this is quite common. Whenever you use radioisotope dating methods to date rocks of known age, where we had a volcanic eruption, we saw it, we know how old the eruption is, you routinely get inflated ages. It's, it's, it's not all that, uh, it's common. Uh, and um, so, you know, you, that's a good reason to question here. Are these, is this giving us the right answer? Now, some evolutionists will object to the example I showed you because the method that was used for those other examples, uh, the Mount Ngerahu and Mount St. Helens, that's called potassium argon. And they, and they use something called the model age, where they basically make some measurements, turn the crank, and, and get an age estimate. It's not really the best way to try to get a radioisotope age. Uh, there's something called the isochron method that is supposed to be a lot better. It supposedly removes some of the uncertainties you have in the model age method. But even when you use the isochron method that is supposed to be better, you still can get crazy results. Uh, so Steve Austin actually got volcanic rock samples from the, uh, a rock unit deep within the Grand Canyon called the Cardenas Basalt. And they used the, the rubidium strontium isochron method, and they got an age of over a billion years, which is, okay, that makes sense, right? If you're an evolutionist, this is deep in the canyon, sure, that, that's a reasonable age uh, uh, for that uh, volcanic rock unit. Well, there was also some recent lava flows at the rim of the canyon, and when you use that same method, you get an age of 1.34 billion years. Now, there's two things bad wrong with that age estimate, right? Okay, nobody, regardless of whether you're an evolutionist or a creationist, thinks those recent lava flows are billions of years old. Okay, they just aren't. Uh, both creationists and evolutionists would agree uh, that they're just thousands of years old. Okay, and to make matters worse, <laughs> you, you have to believe that the recent lava flows are older than the rocks, the rocks at the bottom, right? How can you have the rocks at the top be older than the rocks at the bottom? So this doesn't make any sense, okay? And, you know, here's the question that we creationists are asking. If radioisotope dating methods give ridiculous age estimates for rocks of known age, then how can we trust them to date rocks of unknown age? So that's the first reason to be skeptical of these inflated ages. And the second is that they often disagree with other dating methods. Now again, let me remind you, these are calculated ages. Okay, there's no device to measure age. There's not, age isn't something you can measure in a laboratory. And these age estimates are only as good as the assumptions behind them. 
And creation scientists and secular scientists have very different starting assumptions. Uh, as I pointed out yesterday, we affirm creation in a global flood, and they deny those things. And they hold to a philosophy called uniformitarianism that says the present is the key to the past. Now, we have different starting assumptions, okay, and so we're going to get different age estimates. But what we often find is even when we're generous to the secularists and we make uniformitarian assumptions to be generous to their position, we, we get results that contradict their position. And this is what's called an internal critique, okay? Uh, I, if, I make, if I make young earth assumptions and I get a young age, I haven't really proved anything, right? If they use old earth assumptions and get an old age, they haven't proved anything either. But if we can show that you make old earth assumptions, uniformitarian assumptions, and that leads to a contradiction with your own position, then we've, got, we've gotten somewhere. So this is an internal critique where we show that even when you assume uniformitarianism, the age estimates are much too young to agree with the evolutionary story. In fact, nearly all calculated age estimates are incompatible with the billions of years uh, that we're told the Earth is. Uh, the Earth's magnetic field is a powerful argument uh, that the Earth is young. Uh, secular scientists have to believe that that magnetic field has been going for billions of years, and the problem is you need electrical currents to keep that magnetic field going. Well, currents die down over time. So how do you keep a magnetic how do you keep those currents going for billions of years? And one secular scientist not too long ago said this. He said, we do not know how the Earth's magnetic field has lasted for billions of years. We know that the Earth has had a magnetic field for most of its history. We don't know how the Earth did that. We have less of an understanding now than we previously thought we had a decade ago. And it's actually worse than that because of the energy of the field is decreasing so rapidly that just a few tens of thousands of years, uh, the energy of the field would have been so great uh, that it would have melted the Earth's crust. So the Earth's magnetic field is, is inconsistent with the billions of years uh, that they, they try to tell us. Um, salt in the oceans. Okay, there is, when, when you have erosion, salt is being put into the oceans, and there's a little bit of salt being removed. Not a lot, but a little bit. And you can, when you make uniformitarian assumptions that are generous to evolutionists, you assume there was no salt in the ocean to begin with, and you make reasonable estimates for the, the inputs and outputs for salt over millions of years, you get a maximum possible age of the oceans for 62 million years. Well, they claim the oceans are billions of years old. Okay, again, you've got a contradiction with the evolutionary story. Uh, the continents are eroding away surprisingly rapidly, and there's a lot of uncertainty in these numbers, but they should be completely eroded away in 3 to 50 million years. Well, that just doesn't fit with the story they're, they're telling us. Now, I know what some evolutionists will say. They will say, okay, Mr. Creationist, yes, you're right. The continents are being eroded away, but there's new rock being formed. You know, you have mountains rising. Uh, there's volcanic eruptions that are coming up with new volcanic material. And so they would say, well, this refutes your argument. Well, I'm not sure the numbers work on that, but even if we, even if we just ignore the, the numbers for a second, there's a very good reason that, that rebuttal doesn't work. Okay, They're claiming that the bulk of the continents is being replaced, but guess what? In those rocks 
are sedimentary rocks and fossils. And the, the creatures of the, that made those fossils, many of them are extinct. So no, no, no new fossils of these kind are being formed. So if it's all going to be eroded away in a few tens of millions of years, why is it that we still have fossils that are supposedly hundreds of millions of years old? Okay, for instance, you've got rocks and fossils at the top of the Colorado Plateau. They're supposed to be around 100 million years old, but they've been exposed to erosion for 70 million years. Well, why are they still there? Okay, so this is, this is something they don't have a good answer for. Uh, and uh, we see evidence for youth in biology. Okay, mistakes are accumulating in our DNA so rapidly, the human race ought to be extinct if it's millions of years old. In fact, one evolutionist said, why haven't we died a hundred times over? Okay, soft dinosaur tissue. We've talked about that um, uh, Friday evening. Uh, this is another powerful argument that these dinosaur bones cannot be millions of years old because otherwise you would not be seeing this soft, pliable, fragile tissue in these dinosaur bones. In fact, Mary Schweitzer, who made the discovery, said there's still so much about ancient soft tissues that we do not understand. Why are these materials preserved when all of our models say they should be degraded? Well, we would argue that it's just because they're young. And uh, we're finding more and more examples of this all the time. And even the secular literature where we're finding bio, original biological material in fossils that are supposed to be hundreds of millions of years old. In fact, if you look at in outer space, uh, especially within our solar system, nearly all calculated age estimates are incompatible with an age of 14 billion years for the universe. So why then, if, if, if most of these estimates coming from these age estimates give you relatively young ages, why do secular scientists focus on the radioisotope dating? Well, it's one of the few methods that give you ages that are old enough and evolution needs lots of time to appear plausible. Okay, so they tend to focus on that because it's giving them the answer they want. Okay, so the methods disagree with common sense. They disagree with other dating methods that don't involve radioisotope dating. And we're going to see evidence that they disagree with each other. Now, there's another way that you could estimate the age uh, of uh, uh, rocks. Uh, in granite, you have these little crystals called zircons, and uh, some of the material uh, in the zircon crystals, you have uranium impurities in the zircon crystals. So the zircon crystals are actually radioactive, and that uranium is turning to lead. Okay, But it also, during that process, it's going to give off some uh, helium as well. Now, now, why is this an issue? Well, in order to kind of understand what's going on, we kind of have to review some, some basics about radioisotope dating. As I'm sure most of you learned in high school, uh, you've got the, the nucleus of the atom. It's very tiny, very dense. This isn't actually drawn to scale, uh, but nearly all the mass of the atom is in the nucleus, and it's composed of these positively charged protons and electrically neutral neutrons, and it's surrounded by a cloud, if you will, of negatively charged electrons. Now, all atoms of the same chemical element will always have the same number of protons, but they can have different numbers of neutrons. And so these different varieties okay, of a chemical element, we call those isotopes. So for instance, uranium uh, has 92 protons, but the number of neutrons can differ. 
So you might have uranium-238, uh, where you have 146 neutrons, and you could have uranium-235, where there's 143 neutrons. Uh, carbon-14, the same thing. Carbon, all carbon atoms have six protons, but they can have six, seven, or eight neutrons. And uh, one of those, those varieties of carbon is what we call radiocarbon, which you've already heard some about today. Now, some of these isotopes are unstable, and they will spontaneously change into other kinds of atoms. So, for instance, uranium-238 can turn into lead-206, and we say that the original atoms are parent atoms, and the resulting stable atoms, we call those daughter atoms. And so there's lots of examples of this. Uh, you can have uranium turn into lead, uh, potassium turn into argon, rubidium into strontium, and you'll notice I've also put carbon-14 there. It turns back into nitrogen. And I've done carbon-14 in a different color because it's a little bit different from these other methods. The other methods that we've been talking about so far are used to date rocks that were volcanic, rocks in a molten state. Carbon-14 is normally used to date things that were once alive. And the other difference uh, between them is that there, there's a different what we call half-life. Uh, carbon-14 has a short half-life, and we'll explain what that means here in a little bit. But uh, when you have uh, this going on, let's, let's say you have a uranium atom, there will often be these alpha particles emitted, and an alpha particle is really just a helium nucleus. It's a helium atom minus the two electrons. And so during this process, you will often have these helium nuclei that are shot out of the nucleus like little bullets. And when uranium-238 is turning into lead-206, this happens eight times. There are eight of these little bullets that get shot out of the nucleus. And, of course, they will quickly grab a hold of two electrons, and they will become full-blown helium atoms inside these zircon crystals. Now, uh, you can express the decay rate in terms of something called a half-life, and that's the time required for half of the material to turn into something else. And if you know the half-life, and if you think you know the original amount of daughter element that was there when the rock, you know, at time equals zero, they think you can figure out the rock's age. And so that's the basic idea between these radioisotope dating methods. Now, uh, we're going to see, though, that this leads to a contradiction. Uh, remember, I talked about the, the zircon crystals. The zircon crystals have uranium impurities in them okay so the zircon crystals are a little bit radioactive now these are, the crystals are found in granitic rock okay now as as the uranium is turning into lead it shoots out these helium nuclei the helium nuclei as i said earlier they grab a couple of electrons they become helium atoms but these helium atoms leak out of the zircon crystals okay it's kind of like the way that helium leaks out of a balloon over time okay uh, but it does, it's more slow through the rocks, okay, but it's, it's, the rocks are not impermeable. Those helium atoms can leak out or diffuse out of the, the zircon crystals over time. Well, some creationists uh, looked at some zircon crystals from New Mexico, uh, and they, they, they did some uh, research on this, and, it, and it, we, what we realized is that the helium is leaking out so rapidly that if these zircon crystals are billions of years old, which is what we're being told, there should be very little 
her helium left. But guess what? When you actually measure the helium in those zircon crystals, there's a lot left. Okay? Now, when you look at the amount uh, of um, helium that's still there, and, and you can measure the rates at which the helium leaks out, okay? When you do that, you get an age estimate of just thousands of years for these zircon crystals. Now, now here's what's weird, though, okay? Remember that this is a radioactive decay process. Helium is one of the daughter products, but so is lead. Now, if you use the lead and you make the standard assumptions that secular scientists make, you get an age of about one and a half billion years for the zircon crystal. So you have two different products from the same decay process. One of them seems to be indicating an age of thousands of years. The other seems to be indicating an age of billions of years. So you got a, a contradiction. Which of these is correct? Well, I want to, we're going to come back to that. We're going to answer that question a little bit later. But we're going to see some more examples of how these methods disagree with each other. Okay? Um, the the re ICR was involved in a big research project called the Rate Project years ago. And uh, one thing that we did in this project is we used radioisotope dating methods on four different rock units from the Grand Canyon. Uh, and they used the isochron method. Now, remember, the isochron method is supposed to be better. It's supposed to be better than just, you know, uh, what they call the model age method. This is supposed to be really the best way to do this. Now, what's interesting, you see those, those arrows up on the chart. Those each represent different age estimates, okay? Now, you notice what, and, and they also represent the error range, okay? That's why, that's why it's not a dot. That's why we have a, a range of values, because we're looking at the, uh, the uncertainties in these numbers. And for instance, you have one rock unit, the Cardenas basalt, that we talked about earlier. Look what's true of all three of those age estimates. They are completely different, okay? You use different radioisotope dating methods on the same rock unit, and you get completely different answers, even though this is supposed to be one of the better dating methods. Uh, the, uh, the Bass Rapids, some of them agree. Some of those error bars are lining up, but most of them don't. In fact, if you look at the Brahma rock unit, there's no agreement at all. Okay? So what's going on here? Well, the reason I have these in different colors is because some of these dating methods, in, are, that when, in, when, they, when they undergo radioactive decay, there's a lot of alpha particles emitted. The other decay process, you have a lot of other kind of particles, lighter particles that we call beta particles. They're basically electrons. Um, and what you see is that uh, the, 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 the methods that are based on the heavier isotopes tend to consistently give you older age estimates. Okay, but they disagree. Okay, now this doesn't make sense, right? If you have the same rock unit, and you're having two radioisotope dating methods that should be, you should be able to use it on that rock unit, and those, and those methods are giving completely different answers, obviously something's wrong, okay? So we're seeing here that even when you date the same rock unit, you can get different results. Uh, Carbon-14 is another example of this contradiction, okay? Uh, almost all carbon is stable, but there's a little bit of radiocarbon out there, uh, this radiocarbon is generated when, when these energetic protons that we call cosmic rays collide with molecules in the atmosphere. 
uh, neutrons are produced, they interact with nitrogen, you get the carbon-14, and uh, living things take in carbon. We take in carbon, including carbon-14. So while you're alive, a small percentage of the carbon atoms in your body is radioactive. But when you die, you're no longer taking in carbon, so that percentage of radiocarbon to total carbon is going to get smaller and smaller over time. And they think you, they can use that to estimate the, the age of the object. Well, as I said earlier, carbon-14 has a very short half-life, just 5,700 years, whereas other elements, you know, they may have half-lives in billions of years. Well, what's interesting here is that the best instruments on the planet should not be able to detect any radiocarbon in something more than 100,000 years old. Well, guess what? We routinely find it in things that are millions, supposedly millions of years old. Even in diamond that is supposedly billions of years old. Okay? So what we have here, what we have here is another contradiction. Okay? The radiocarbon method uh, seems to be indicating that these things are young, but the other radioisotope dating methods seem to be indicating that they're old. And by the way, it's really hard to explain the diamond. You know, when creationists bring this up, one of the things they always say is, oh, it was contaminated. Somehow you had new, ra new radiocarbon that contaminated the sample. Well, you know, we're looking at diamond. It's the hardest known naturally occurring substance. How do you contaminate a diamond? Okay? And creation scientists really did look at other possible explanations, and they were able to rule them out. Okay? Uh, this is a strong argument that there's something wrong with these radioisotope dating methods. So you see there's a contradiction here. The radioisotope dating methods that you used on the rocks, that's where you're getting supposedly evidence for millions of years. But here's the catch. If the millions of years are real, there shouldn't be any radiocarbon in those specimens. But there is. So the different, the radiocarbon method is contradicting the other methods. So what's going on here? Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to try to explain this. Well, why do they disagree with each other? But first of all, why, why don't these methods work? Okay, well, we don't want to just throw stones at the radioisotope dating method. We want to kind of explain why we think it's getting the wrong answer. And our president emeritus, uh, Dr. John Morris, at the Institute for Creation Research, he used what he called a potato peeling parable to kind of explain this to, to people, okay? So let's just imagine that you go to a university campus and you enter a science auditorium and uh, there's somebody, there's a table up there and there's a basket that has potatoes in it, okay? And there's a fellow up there, he's peeling potatoes, okay? So you watch this guy for 10 minutes, okay? And he's peeling potatoes and he's doing it at a very steady rate. Every minute, he peels a potato, he, you know, he takes a potato out, peels it, puts it back in the basket, takes out another potato, peels it, after one minute, he puts it back in. So he's, he's taking one minute to peel each of these potatoes. And you watch him do that for 10 minutes, okay? Then he leaves the room. And you think, I wonder how long this guy has been peeling potatoes. And so you go up to the basket, you look inside, and you see 40 peeled potatoes. So how long was he peeling potatoes? It's a trick question. I'll, I'll tell you that. It's a trick question. Most of you are wanting to say 40 minutes, right? And that seems reasonable. 
But when you did that quick mental calculation, you were making some assumptions. First of all, you were assuming that you knew what the initial conditions were. You were implicitly assuming there were no peeled potatoes in that basket when he started. You don't know that, though. Okay, maybe there were some potatoes peeled the night before. Maybe there were already peeled potatoes in the basket. Okay, you just don't know. You weren't there. You didn't see it. The second assumption is you're assuming that nobody came along and either took out or removed potatoes, especially the peeled potatoes. But again, you were only watching this guy for 10 minutes. You don't know what may have happened when you were not in the room. And the third assumption is you were assuming this guy was peeling at a constant rate. Okay, but you only saw him for 10 minutes. He may have been really fast to start with, but he got tired and slowed down. Maybe he was doing two a minute before you came along and started watching him. Okay, well, despite the complicated mathematics, radioisotope dating uses these same kind of assumptions. You assume you know the starting amount of daughter atoms. Well, this is problematic because uh, remember that remember the example I showed you where you had all these young rocks that were giving inflated ages. Well, a lot you, it, theoretically, you're not supposed to have daughter elements in these volca new volcanic rocks, or, or if you do, you're supposed to be able to estimate how much is there. Uh, well, but, you know, you can have unexpected amounts of daughter element in those rocks, those new volcanic rocks, and that makes the rocks seem older than they really are. Uh, likewise, you're assuming that there were no, no parent or daughter atoms flowed in or out of the rock. Well, guess what? Rocks are kind of like sponges, okay? They're not immune to contamination. Stuff can flow in and out. Groundwater can transport uranium and lead into and out of rocks, which is one reason we need to test water to make sure, you know, we're not drinking lead or, or uranium atoms. Um, we're also assuming a constant decay rate. You're assuming that these radioactive decay rates have been constant through time. Uh, now, the third assumption seems to be the most reasonable, and for many years, we creation scientists were hesitant to challenge that third assumption, but now we've got really good evidence that that third assumption is wrong, too. And we think there is strong evidence that there were, that there were times in the past, probably during the flood, where the, the decay rates were much faster, okay? And if you, if you don't take that into account, that's going to explain why you have this contradiction in the zircon crystals, okay? Uh, for, you know, the reason you, you, if you make the standard assumptions, you get an age estimate of billions of years for the zircons, that's because you did have billions of years worth of radioactive decay at today's rate, okay? But it occurred rapidly. It occurred, it, it occurred not over billions of years, but in a much shorter amount of time. And so the reason you still have all that helium there is because it's only had a few thousand years to leak out, okay? So that's, that's the contradiction, okay? And so we think this explains why you have all that helium in those zircon crystals, even though they're supposedly billions of years old. Now, in order to get around this, you would have to assume that the helium can leak out really, really much faster than it can, 100,000 times faster than it really can. And, and that just really doesn't work. There's no reason to think the diffusion or leakage rates would change. Uh, even, if, even, if the, even if the decay rates change, you wouldn't expect the leakage rates to change. Okay, so we've got multiple lines of evidence for accelerated nuclear decay. Now, we haven't got it all figured out. Okay, there's still big issues here. One of the big problems with this, apparently, 
is there's an enormous amount of heat generated okay somehow god had to have safely dissipated that heat okay also we think there's only certain times where this radioactive decay could occur without killing everybody <laughs> okay the flood would be one of them because during the flood noah and the animals on the ark they were protected by thick wooden walls and there was probably a mile of water between them and these radioactive elements so we think a lot of this decay probably occurred during the flood uh, some creationists think it might have actually started at the fall that god actually started the radioactive decay at the fall and so you had a lot of that occurring in the 1656 years between the fall and the flood but it was steady and it was since it was all in the ground we were mostly protected from it but during the flood the crust started getting mixed up and a lot of more of these radioactive elements got close to the to the surface okay so the methods disagree with each other and we're arguing that's because there, there's bad assumptions behind them now the dates the fourth reason to be skeptical of these ages is, the, is that the dates are not independent now your high school and college textbooks greatly oversimplify uh, these methods okay they give you the impression that all you do is you make a measurement or measurements you plug them into a formula, you turn the crank, and voila, you've got the age estimate. And supposedly, the age estimates are not influenced by outside factors, okay, i.e. political factors, okay? But is that really true? Okay, I want to show you a couple of examples where evolutionary assumptions were allowed to overrule the radioisotope dates. Uh, you know, someone was asking about magnetic reversals a while ago. There have been magnetic reversals. We think these are associated with the flood. But uh, years ago, the secular scientists assigned an age of 730,000 years to one of these reversals. Well, they arbitrarily changed it to 780,000 years. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but if you look at the error bars on their er error measurements, that was not justified. Okay, they just, they, what they did was they threw out their radioisotope date and just arbitrarily changed it. Now, why did they do that? Well, it turns out they needed a higher age to agree with something they call the Milankovitch Ice Age Theory. And so this is their dominant theory about how ice ages occur. Uh, they think there's these changes in Earth's orbital motions that pace ice ages. And uh, in order, they, they were, what they were doing is they were trying to analyze data from these sediment cores to agree with this theory. And it didn't work unless they just changed the magnetic age, the age of the magnetic reversal. So they did that. But what's crazy is it turns out that magnetic reversal was critical to the paper that first convinced everybody this theory was correct in the first place. So what happened was when they changed that date, they undermined their own argument and they invalidated this paper. And this is not just any old paper right here. This paper is so important in secular thinking that the journals Nature and Science, that's probably the two most prestigious journals on the planet, commemorated this paper's 40th anniversary in 2016. Of course, they didn't mention anything about, you know, all the stuff that went on here. But if you'd like to learn more about this, uh, this is really kind of a big deal. Uh, we've got a lot of articles on our ICR website uh, dealing with this. We've got a series of articles called Milankovitch Meltdown. I know that's a mouthful, but that's uh, what they call this theory, the Milankovitch theory. And uh, you can read more about it if you're interested. But basically, 
even though they invalidated their original argument, guess what? They still use the Milankovitch theory to calibrate or adjust radioisotope dates. There's one particular radioisotope dating method out there called argon-argon dating where you need a rock whose age is already known to date the rock whose age isn't known. Well, guess where they're getting the ages for the, the standards, if you will? The Milankovitch theory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so it's crazy. Okay, so it's circular reasoning. And, and we creationists have been saying this for years. People think, oh, that's just a creationist talking point. No, that's really what's going on. They also use the fossils to decide what dates are good or acceptable. And uh, back in, you know, there, in Kenya around 1969, there, there's a volcanic ash layer you can see there. It's called the KBS Tuff. And they tried to date this tuff originally in 1969. And they used, it's, this is volcanic, so they can date this theoretically. They got an original age estimate of between 212, 230 million years. Now, they threw that date out. Why is that? They didn't like that date. That age estimate was rejected, and the reason for that was that below that volcanic ash layer, they found eight men fossils, if you will, stone tools, okay, uh, which if you take that age seriously, that would mean the fossils and the tools were more than 200 million years old. Now, again, I don't know what you know about the nuances of evolutionary theory, but it is a big no-no have ape men walking around before the dinosaur, okay, or walking around with dinosaurs. Okay, that was a totally unacceptable age estimate if you're an evolutionist. And by the way, okay, we of course do believe that people coexisted with dinosaurs. Some evolutionists get really upset when we say that, but we do. Uh, so they, they, based on the fossils, those rocks below that volcanic layer should have been between two, and a, two to five million years old. So what happens is the evolutionary story determines which dates are acceptable and which are not. And remember the rule I gave you. Good dates agree with evolution and bad dates don't. That's how they know whether a date's good or not. Okay, so they tried again, and this time they got an age of 2.6 million years. Well, now that's more like it. Okay, if I'm an evolutionist, I can live with that date. Okay, that's way better than hundreds of millions of years. Now, What's interesting is they found a fossil skull below that volcanic layer, and it's a really famous fossil. It's called the KNMER1470. That's the catalog number. And um, it was a big deal at the time. They estimated it was around 2.9 million years old. And Richard Leakey found it in 1972, and th they thought at the time this might be the oldest member of the genus Homo, basically the first man, I guess. Now, in retrospect, they made a big deal about what they thought were human-like features on this skull. Now, in retrospect, we think that was all overplayed. We think this is probably a, a, an ape, okay? But at the time, they were making this big deal about how this thing had features that were very human-like, and Richard Leakey was getting all excited because since he found it, he was going to be world famous <laughs> for finding this you know, first human, if you will. And, and interestingly, they had five different dating methods that seemed to all agree and give you an age of 2.6 million years for that volcanic ash layer. They had potassium-argon dating, argon-argon dating. They had paleomagnetism, what they call fission track dating. And they had these fossils that seemed to all agree, okay? 
Well, guess what, though? There's a problem. It's such a quote-unquote modern-looking skull should not have been that old, according to the evolutionary story. Now, Richard Leakey was perfectly okay with it because, again, he was going to be world-famous for finding what he thought was the oldest quote-unquote modern-looking skull, but most evolutionists, were this was not acceptable to them. Okay, this was, again, it, something quote-unquote modern-looking like this should not have been that old. Now, again, I think that in retrospect, we think the modern-looking features were exaggerated, but that's what they were saying at the time. So then they finally lowered the age to 1.8 million years. Well, why did they do that? Well, supposedly, they found these pig fossils, and the pig fossils convinced them it couldn't be more than 1.8 million years old. So basically, look what's going on here. You have pig fossils trumping supposedly five different scientific dating methods that we're always being told we, we can trust, right? We can trust these dating methods. And the pig fossils trumped them all. Okay, now why is that? Okay, Supp the, the real reason, the real reason for this is because, again, that it was too, it was, it's an age of 2.9 million years was just too old for the evolutionary story. So it wasn't really the pig fossils that trumped all this. It was ultimately evolution. Okay, evolution is the real issue here. Okay, and this happens a lot. If you want to read more about this, uh, there's an article online called The Pigs Took It All. Uh, it was written by creation researcher Marvin Lubino. It's, it's described in his first edition book, Bones of Contention, but you can also read uh, samples of it online. And again, let me just remind you, how do secular scientists know that a radioisotope date is good? Well, you tell me. Good dates agree with evolution, right? And bad dates don't. And Marvin Lubino hit the nail on the head. He said, look, in the dating game, evolution always wins. And he's right, because if you ever get a date that you don't like, you can always find an excuse to change it or get rid of it. Okay? <clears throat> so those are four reasons to be skeptical of these inflated ages. And I want to give you the fifth reason, but this fifth reason is the most important one, and that's because they contradict the Word of God. Uh, where's the millions of years in Scripture? It, it's just not there. You really have to do some gymnastics to try to argue that there's millions of years in the Bible. Now, people have come up with all these ideas to try to shoehorn millions of years into the text, but it, they just aren't convincing. And Exodus 20, 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh, the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So that verse is telling us that God made the entirety of the physical universe in just six days. And, that, and it's a literal six days because it's the basis for our literal six-day work week. Okay? Furthermore, the Lord Jesus himself, there are three places in the Gospels where he implicitly affirms a recent creation. In Mark 10, 6, where he talks about God making Adam and Eve from the beginning of the creation. Okay, not billions of years after an alleged Big Bang. He talks about tribulation that had been since the beginning of the creation. Well, biblically, when did tribulation enter the world? When Adam sinned, right? Right after, right after the beginning. And he also talks about the, pro the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world. And he mentions Abel, who was killed early in earth history. So that really is the most important reason. I, you know, I'm, it really should be at the top. That's really reason number one. So those are five reasons we ought to be skeptical of these vast ages coming from radioisotope dating. They disagree with common sense. 
They disagree with other non-radioisotope dating methods. They disagree with each other. The dates aren't independent, and they contradict the word of God. Uh, we, if you're interested, uh, you know, you're probably going to have trouble remembering a lot of this, but we've got resources to help you with this. We've got some, a book called Guide to Creation Basics, which is a good introduction to this, uh, this topic, and we, it, it does have a section on radioisotope dating as well as the Ice Age. And Lord willing, we're going to be talking about the Ice Age in the next session. Uh, we also have a book, Creation Basics and Beyond, that goes in a little more depth. Okay, it's, it's a good handbook. Uh, if you want ammunition, it's, it's not a technical book, but it, it is referenced. We've got footnotes. So if you want some ammunition for answering your skeptical friends, that's a great resource. We also have the Young Earth. I think we're almost out. We may be out. But this is a great book dealing with the age of the earth and uh, the biblical and scientific evidence for a young earth. And it also comes with a CD that has slides that you have legal permission to use in your own PowerPoint presentation. So it's a great resource. We've got the Global Flood, which is another book dealing with the evidence for the flood. The flood is really the key to understanding geology. Uh, but that's a great little book there as well. Uh, it has a lot of good illust illustrations in it. And we also have a lot of resources dealing with the age of the universe and the age of the solar system. And we have our Guide to the Universe book. That, that's, a, that's a good resource, very nice illustrations in it. Uh, we have our DVD, uh, Universe DVD series. I think we're out of those. But we, you, we haven't said too much about these up here in the top. What you aren't being told about astronomy, those are dynamite. Those, those are just fantastic. They've got beautiful images. And the guy who made them, Spike Thesaurus, just destroys all these evolutionary arguments one after one. The first one is about the solar system, and he shows you evidence after evidence after evidence that the solar system is young. And the other two are dynamite as well. Uh, they're just fantastic. Um, we've got some resources on the Ice Age. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about that in the next session. Um, let me tell you something about that, that DVD, the Ice Age Real and Recent. I gave a talk at a church um, not too far from ICR a couple of years ago, I guess, maybe three or four years ago. And uh, there was a, we got a letter afterwards from a guy who said his friend came to the talk, and he was a Christian, but he thought young earth creationism was stupid. <laughs> and so he was on the front row like this, you know. He thought, and apparently that talk changed his mind. Okay, because he got he started saying, okay, maybe these creations aren't as dumb as we thought they were. Um, but it, it's a little bit technical, but it shows you the circular reasoning that they go through when they when they date things, and it also um, explains the ice age from a biblical perspective, and and so does the the little booklet. And the booklet uh, it talks about the ice age, but it also spends a lot of time talking about the ice cores. Because there are a lot of secular scientists out there who think the ice cores are an unanswerable argument for an old earth. I mean, Bill Nye, the science guy, thinks they're an unanswerable argument for an old earth. Well, if you want ammo to refute that, that booklet is a great resource. Now, it's not necessarily a fun read, but if you want ammo, ammo to refute your skeptical friends, that's the book for you. Uh, we've also got some resources on dinosaurs. Uh, the Guide to Dinosaur Books is very beautifully illustrated. It's got a lot of great info. And we've got these books for kids, too. Uh, the, the, the one, Big Plans for Henry, is for really young kids. And the other one, uh, a Dinosaur is God's Mysterious Creature. That's for ki kids, but who are a little bit older. 
Okay, again, if you haven't signed up for a magazine, please do so. It's provided for our donors, and we've got answers to the tough questions you have about creation versus evolution. Okay, so again, uh, those are five reasons to be skeptical of these vast ages. I hope this talk has been a blessing to you.